when you're ready. Let's start this game. Welcome to Unstacked and Let's Unwind with award-winning and international best-selling author, Samant Basu. Let's find out about his writing process and newest science fiction novel, The Jinbot of Shantyport. Hey, this is Sarah from the Bay County Public Library. Hey, this is Stephen from the Huntsville-Madison County Public Library. Hi, it's such a pleasure to be here. I'm Samit. I live in Delhi. I've been a writer and occasional filmmaker and comics person for the last 20 years. And um, yeah, Jinbot is out now and it's my absolute privilege to be here with you. And it's been described as a mashup of Aladdin meets Murderbot. And it's such a delightful read. Uh, can you introduce our listeners to your new novel, The Jinbot of Shantyport? So the Jinbot of Shantyport started out as being a sort of far future Aladdin in space retelling. But then the city that it was set in, Shantyport, kind of took a hold on the story and, and made it uh, something a little different. So it's the story of two siblings. One is human, a young woman named Lena, who is the daughter of failed revolutionaries in a city that is kind of broken, sinking under this corrupt trio of an oligarch, a kind of a colonist clan and a crime lord. And her brother, who is a monkey robot named Badur, who wants to escape this town and become a space hero fighting space battles. The city's ruling tech oligarch recruits them to um, unearth a piece of alien technology, which is kind of the lamp in this story. Um, except this is very powerful tech that can, you know, if wishes are made into it, it can really change the whole city. And so the the, the novel is the story of what happens after they find it. When you're writing sci-fi, there's a lot of world building that goes into crafting future worlds. What goes into it? Do you set yourself any rules when you're writing it? Oh, absolutely. So one of the rules for me is that I want the technology to be reflective of, you know, not just scientific progress, but also the culture that it is being used in. For this book, it was, you know, a lot of a lot of technology that is, that is kind of, it, it's sort of, you know, space tech of our future tech that we have seen before, but it is all being kind of politically and socially implemented into a part of the world that is inspired by the kind of global South settings that I grew up in. So apart from the tech existing for itself, it's, you know, in terms of surveillance, in terms of social control, in terms of, um, you know, um, human rights being a factor, in this case, bot rights also being a factor, labor being shipped out, immigration and all of that. So kind of every piece of space tech or sci-fi tech that we've seen in pop culture is kind of there, but it's used in a city where there is a focus on, let's say, control rather than wonder and progress. And retelling of folklore and fairy tales has definitely been something I'm like immediate drawn to when I'm like picking out my next reads. And this one is no exception, is wonderful. It has that thread of familiarity, but then it's totally something on its own. So when you were doing research for Aladdin, what elements did you know that you wanted to definitely include? And then how did you kind of change the story to fit your narrative and a contemporary audience? Right. So, you know, I was searching for stories that had been, uh, that I had first experienced as a child in a language other than English and something that to me felt vaguely local. 
So Aladdin, when I heard it for the first time, I, I heard it orally in Bengali. And it was kind of pretty much the story that is in the Arabian Nights fables, right? And I next encountered this as the, the sort of the classic Disney animation of the early 90s. And I'd seen it in the middle as a Hindi TV show that was kind of based on the Urdu, Arabic, you know, derived from the Arabian Nights themselves. And I remember even as a child being very amazed at how all of these were fundamentally different stories. It wasn't just the language and the medium that were different, but the story itself was different. And so when the live action Aladdin came out a few years ago, the Will Smith is Genie one. And, you know, there was that, there was a lot of conversation now about how appropriation was happening, orientalism was happening, all of these things that I hadn't really registered when I was watching as a kid, because, you know, as a kid, you don't stop to think, why are classic Hollywood images being used in this kind of exotic Arabia thing, which is also American, which also, um, what what is this place? Because you're not looking for any of that when you're a child. But it struck me that Aladdin was a story that I had experienced from both East and West. And when I read it up, I found that Aladdin was not even a part of the, it wasn't one of the Arab stories in the Thousand and One Nights. It was a last minute addition by a Syrian Christian kind of hustler person into the French translation that made it to Europe and then was reinterpreted a million times in pantomimes and plays. And I don't know at what point of time the unlimited wishes became three wishes. So it was just this kind of homeless orientalist classic that somehow everyone in the world knew but no one was sure where it was from. So I thought this was a good, this was a good thing. I wanted to give this a home. So I thought I would um, make a very far future version of Kolkata, which is the city that I grew up in, and tell this and, you know, give Aladdin a home there. Except when the city kind of grew on it, um, you know, there, and even as a child, there were many aspects of the story that I just didn't like. I didn't like the wishes that he made. I remember thinking I wouldn't have wished for that. And does Aladdin have no friends? Could he just not make three wishes, give it to a friend who would also make three wishes? Why is he lying to Jasmine all the time? You know, all of all of these are very real questions you have even as a kid. And I was thinking that, you know, if, if Aladdin had a social consciousness, then the wishes he would have made with that kind of unlimited power would have been very different. So I kind of sep- I wanted to separate Aladdin into one hero with who was concerned about the city and the future and the consequences of wishes and another hero who wanted to be like a hustler action figure you know winning everything lying cheating stealing his way to success and thus Lena and Bador were born so they kind of became two aspects of the same hero so I had as you can see I had a lot of fun doing this. And I also love how Moku's character is a story bot and he kind of weaves in that storytelling um, narrative as well and kind of plays nod to how narratives change and transform over time. Oh, yeah. I I mean, I once I once I started thinking that robots would be a major part of the story and we live in an age now where we don't like robots, right, because we're finally seeing In real life, we're seeing AI and robots creep up on our daily lives and very justifiably we don't like it. And yet robots remain some of the most lovable, relatable, rootable for characters in fiction because of their kind of universal nature. Anyone can see themselves in a robot that just wants things and that wants to be better. So the idea of Moku is being this kind of literally a camera that's following these people around, but you can be, you know, but but is also your POV character and getting involved in the story against both his interests and his better judgment um, was something that that I enjoyed very much because, I mean, initially I was going to do it as a, 
as a two person point of view story with these with these siblings but i just thought that you know given that especially when there's a cultural divide right like so much of these stories it's a question of who's doing the telling what are their preconceived biases how you know how much do they see the 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 place that they're perceiving as another place as a different place right so i thought what if we took a a narrative figure that actually had no preconceived biases but was just going on available information and then getting emotionally involved so it was it was it was really fun to to work with moku because uh, you know you in these stories you always have that problem where if it's if it's a very kind of unfamiliar place say to american readers you don't want to use kind of you know that classic um there there are these parody videos of what arab locations look like in american war movies right like there's a you know the standard yellow filter and the music and all of that you don't want that view so yeah so so moku was a was a character that that kind of helps skip over the cultural divide and and kind of be it turns into the... one of my favorite characters in the book as well <laughs> thank you no it's been such a pleasure kind of you know you always worry i mean i've been writing for a long time and and i've been lucky enough to have the work travel before this as well but this is always a point of worry when you know how will and especially with things like when you're trying to be vaguely funny or when you're trying to um with all of these you never know whether it'll work at a very fundamental level and you know and and not only will it work as you can appreciate externally what's going on but will it work internally which is always the challenge in a book right you've got to feel it from the inside so yeah it's been lovely just whenever anyone enjoys it i my my heart just fills up touching back on on what you said there with the the socially conscious wishes and and making different choices kind of like it makes me think of the 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 thanos kind of thing he's got the unlimited power and instead of wishing for more resources let's just wish for less people to use some kind of thing yeah, it's, yeah. it's it's making those kind of jumps sci-fi is one of those genres that you get to explore the future, kind of looking out how things change. We're seeing more governments kind of commissioning sci-fi writers now to kind of plan out scenarios for the future. How much do you think these stories can impact how how our future becomes? Um, You know, this is always a very tough question because on the one hand, you have, I mean, I always see sci-fi as that kind of, articulation of a society's dreams and fears at any point of time right so um if you look at overall at the sci-fi of any period you'll get a pretty interesting picture of what people dreamed of being where they dreamed of going and what their overall cultural values were in the mainstream of the society that they were uh, writing in and sometimes these values and these dreams crept into the work even if they weren't the point of the story so when it comes to the that interaction of sci-fi writers helping governments predict the future or work towards the future i never really know where it'll land because you know governments in many ways are their own form of articulating the dreams and hopes of the populations that they represent or control there is always that gap of what is actually feasible and what is for the public good you know um when we're seeing when we're seeing sci-fi visions being executed by say techno oligarchs right um the potential of the technology and the wonders that it can create are often lost in the in the desire to maximize profits or to you know or to eliminate jobs and things like that so 
I think on the whole that it is better if, say, progressive governments are using the ideas of science fiction to to execute their, you know, their allocation of scientific resources, their investment in, in scientific technology and all of that. But I always worry about both the intentions and the intended effect. So, for example, recently in India, we had a big moon landing, right? Everyone was very happy because objectively a moon landing is a very cool thing. But then there's the question of can this country afford a moon landing? Absolutely, it can't. What is the point of this? Like, yes, we know it is possible, but should those resources have been used to um, for many, many other things which are dire needs? Now, even as a science fiction writer who, who loves the moon and things landing on it, can I be objectively happy that that in a in a desperately poor country where there's a million problems that need to be addressed right now, we're thumping our chests and waving our flag and saying we landed on the moon? I don't think that's a good idea. And I'm going to switch topics. You have this wonderful use of humor throughout, especially with Bador's character. Uh, he is just so funny. Like anything he does, like even in the first like chapter and he like, lands and he lands in a heroic pose and there's humor even in that action um how do you balance humor in your work in a world where a lot of seriously traumatic external things are happening like there's flooding there's the surveillance government there's crime lords how do you balance that uh, first of all thank you that was very kind of you and you know in terms of balancing humor and really dire things i think the 2020s are making all of us experts at it. You know, um, you don't have to be in the global south for multiple choice apocalypses to be heading uh, towards you at any point of time. I think even I think even in the US, there is just 15 disasters that are just stacked up every day as potential things that could end everything. And in I think humor is just a coping mechanism in these times because if one is to really get, you know, you would be emotionally exhausted at the end of at the end of every single day, if you can't just laugh at the simultaneous ridiculousness of the, all the horror that everyone is going through. So, yeah, so with, so with, and, and, you know, with all of my favorite robots, whether it's Murderbot, whether it's Bender Rodriguez from Futurama, whether, I mean, robots are inherently ridiculous and inherently funny. I think for a lot of people who love books, and all three of us are people who love books, right? One of the reasons why, books are great in the world we live in. One of the many reasons is that books make sense when the world doesn't. You know, the world is not constrained to follow either narrative arcs or logical, you know, or the rules of causality or, or any of that, but books are. But even in books, just having characters respond to the absurdity and the trauma that they're in and choosing to, you know, live their fullest life is something that, that I think we all celebrate whatever the genre, whatever the medium even that we're that we're consuming these stories in. And so, yeah, I'm for me, it's not that Bador is using humor to cope, but just gratitude that it travels, you know, because because it it's always a worry that, you know, what is funny, what is just saddening in these circumstances. Kind of touching on that. Do you think there, because obviously there's, different cultures have different ideas of what's scary, what's funny kind of thing. Do you think there's certain aspects of, of, of humor that's universal and what? I think that there's several levels of humor that are funny universally, right? 
I mean, at at one level, just pure visual slapstick comedy is funny across cultures. There is no, I mean, I remember my, I had this cousin who, um, who's Irish Indian and who went to, uh, and who has a thick Irish Indian accent. And I can't, I can't even imitate that. Like you, it's not, it, you wouldn't believe me if I did it accurately. So he goes to the Caribbean to this wedding where there's people from 16 cultures and he's worried that his wedding speech jokes won't land. And he's making the speech in his Irish Indian accent. And he finds the whole multicultural audience, many of whom he's surprised can understand him because they couldn't understand anything he said when he was talking to them earlier. As he's making his jokes, the audience is laughing uproariously at everything he says. And he, you know, he's he's reconsidering his whole life and he's very happy. Then he realizes that his pants have fallen down. <laughs> um, his elaborate <laughs> ethnic Indian wedding costume Sherwani thing has collapsed. And then he's like, then I realized pants falling down is funny in any language. So that's one thing that that really translates. And I think what's also happened nowadays is that, um, you know, the Internet has developed a monoculture of its own. Um, most of this, I mean, there is a universal language of the Internet that is mostly expressed through kind of visual things, mostly through emojis and memes and all of that. But there is an Internet language that has kind of unified the world of internet users and you know while there are many things to complain about in these kind of global entertainment blockbusters that that the whole world consumes one thing they do achieve is that they unify language so between the internet and global entertainment i think there is a, possibly a greater unity of language and language usage than there has been before you know when so let's say in india most of the books i read in english growing up were british books as opposed to american books Right. So there there was, a, I mean, there were cultural differences, pretty major cultural differences, even between those. If you were if you were very highly read in one department and you weren't in the other, um, not all of it translated. But I think the world is 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 a bit different now in terms of how language is used. And so I think that helps humor travel. I mean, you can't go wrong with pants falling down sometimes. It's, it's yeah, the, yeah, the, yeah. The, the, it's, the universals. It's hard to do in books, though. Like it's, you always wonder whether you got it across. I, I guess that's thinking back. I mean, because watching the Three Stooges is funny, but if I was yeah. reading a Three Stooges script, would I still think no. it's funny? You know, yeah. Mo abusing the various guys around. Him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, if you if you wrote down a transcript of what happened in a Tom and Jerry cartoon, it would be horrifying. It would be absolutely horrifying. One of the terms that gets tossed around with your writing is uh, anti-dystopian. What exactly is anti-dystopian? Right. Well, this was this was a term that I that I coined for my previous book, The City Inside, and I tried to make it stick. It will not stick. But what I meant by it was that so here, so so in The City Inside, it was a book that was set in Delhi, ten years in the future, but basically about Delhi today. And the thing is, everyone both the mostly privileged Indians who read it in India and everyone who read it outside India called it dystopian, but I was describing where I live. Um, and it was much gentler and much less savage than the real world, right? So the idea of dystopia is, is something which is theoretically worse than the place that you're actually in, right? The main aspect of it is that dystopia is a function of distance. It is, you know, the further away... Uh, you are from a horrible situation, the more you can be horrified by it, right? Uh, your feelings would be quite different if that was your everyday normal. 
Um, so a description of everyday reality might seem dystopian outside, but it is anti-dystopian in the sense that it is an engagement with the reality, not a displacement from it. The other thing, another reason was that in the book that was being described as dystopian, people were essentially searching for hope and solutions. They were not defeated by the circumstances. There was no bleak ending intended to be edgy and kind of, you know, think about the world. No, they were actually looking to cope with the surroundings that they found themselves in and they were looking, you know, actively looking for solutions. So there was that. And, and the other thing was external, which is that, you know, 10 years from now, Delhi is going to be a lot worse than anything in this book. So if anything, this book is optimistic. So that's where it was from. But again, that's a long explanation for a, for a phrase that I, that is not going to stick. No, I just kept, I, I just kept not one. I mean, I can see if, you know, if everyone says a book is dystopian, it is dystopian and there's nothing I can do about that. But I, but I wanted to stick this word in to just talk about, you know, the, the context where I was coming from. And there is a true love for the city of Shandyport within the Jinpot of Shandyport. And the goal is always to save the city. And you said that this is based off of you growing up in Calcutta. Um, yeah. Our leads throughout the book, they're, the request is to save the city, even when they have chances to leave. Can you share a little bit about the importance of home and place in your novel? Oh, absolutely. So, so Kolkata is a city where I grew up, and so it, it's a former imperial capital. It used to be this grand, magnificent place um, during the British era. It was, the, it was their capital here for a long time. It was a world center of trade. It, at one point, it was the second most important city in the world, and it has been in a state of continuous decline since the since uh, even before independence so economic struggles uh, the city is literally sinking everyone is moving out um, there's been years of both you know there's been really troubling left-wing rule there's been really troubling right-wing rule irrespective of who's in charge the city always seems to be doomed but it is also a very beautiful place and it's a place where tourists come to experience to do kind of poverty tourism and uh, when I was growing up, it was known for being the city of Mother T Teresa, who did wonderful charity work there. So you would find people coming there to see poverty, which is an interesting thing to, to experience if you live there. <laughs> you know, so... <laughs> so, so I'm just so picturing people... Detroit here. <laughs> yeah, so people would come and they'd visit and they'd have a nice time and say, you know, it's all very lovely, but where is the poverty? And like, what do you want? <laughs> can we just have a nice meal <laughs> would be the thing so yeah so so that was where lena being a tourist guide um experiencing the city through the eyes of visitors um the city being a city in in continuous decay and decline and supposed ruin but millions of people still live there and have their lives there and love the city for what is worth so yeah so that so that was why i mean i i drew uh, aladdin into that city I don't live there anymore, but it, but I visit often and it's a place I'm always going to be in love with. I, I, as a writer, you obviously have to, you, you consume a lot of different media as you go along. Um, what are your turn-ons or offs at, as a, a reader or watcher of those media? And are there any tropes that you, you love enough that you just have to get them in your, your writings all the time? You know, I'm throwing a hundred tropes into anything at, at, at any point of time. The I mean, I think as I've grown older, I've become a little better at achieving some kind of restraint. But my first few books were just, you know, 
obscenely overloaded with just tropes from a hundred things that I'd read and seen and heard and absolutely loved. And, you know, it, it became difficult to leave anything out. I think Jinbot goes a little bit back towards what I was writing in my early years because I had a lot of fun with it, you know, because why not have a kaiju made of garbage in the story for no reason? I don't see how it would hurt any story. I don't see how any story would not be fundamentally improved. You know, little women put in a garbage kaiju, see what happens. You know, good things will happen. So yeah, so I mean, I have been just any medium. I don't, my uh, reflexes are not good enough to be a really good video gamer. But anything else, I just consume it. I love it. And I and then, then it bleeds its way into my work. So you name a trope, I love it. And chances are sometime over the last 20 years, it's gone into something I've done. I enjoyed Fastella's character as well for the trash bot. And conceptually, I was really interested in how you made many of your bots sentient. So like Moku and Bador, they begin to, you know, push against their programming in a sense. And they're evolving as the story goes on uh, to create their own narrative. And there, there is that strong desire for for bot rights. Can you share a little bit about that? Oh, absolutely. With a robot rights, that's obviously, you know, at whatever point, it's going to be a very troubling issue for everyone, you know, because I mean, I I tried making a list of what the, what the exact robot rights were that they'd be demanding. And as I made that list, I thought, no, I wouldn't want robots to have these rights, was, was what, what I was thinking. Um, because you do not want you know, to share your workspace with beings who can replicate infinitely and can work indefinite hours, can work stronger, faster, better than you. What happens to you? Because no one is building that utopia where you have, you know, leisure and can enjoy the arts. You're going to lose your job is what's going to happen. So, so, um, so yeah, so, uh, my heroes might have been all for bot rights, but the humans were very carefully supporting it in principle, but not in practice, which the which the actual robot protagonist completely understood and did not like. So how I see it is that I think that, you know, as the years pass in, in real life and in the history of, of this imaginary world, there will be much more of a fusion between humans and, you know, just augmenting technology, both physically and in terms of intelligence augmenting or mental power augmenting in various ways. So all of the robots here that are sentient are also organic in some way. It is, I mean, it's not, they're not constructs in the sense the constructs exist in the book, but they're not so sentient. They're more your drone type things, which are very high tech, but in terms of the major characters that are called robots here, they're all essentially cyborgs, I guess, which is that they are enhanced in some way and just made weird in some other way. They're also designing one another and modifying one another. So we've ended up with some truly bizarre characters. It was very interesting to be writing this at a time where AI has already begun to challenge the everyday workplace because that is something I'm fundamentally against. And yet I love these characters. And I want what they want, and when I and I and I'm seeing the world through their eyes. So it was so that was very interesting because I've not, I mean, I think before when I've tried to see the world through the eyes of characters that I find maybe morally repugnant or I don't agree with their political views, but I'm trying to see them with empathy anyway. Um, but uh, doing it for characters where physically there's a certain alienation was interesting. I read somewhere that you find 
writing beginnings the toughest and that you tend to go back and rewrite them once you're further along. Can you explain your uh, your writing and editing process to us? Over the years, I've started first doing this pack rat thing where I will just collect material in mounds that I will probably not use. And from those mounds, themes and ideas and moments will emerge that I know will have a kind of audition themselves into my subconscious and uh, work into the book. Now, the thing is, what has happened with me is that because I'm writing in genres and sometimes working in media, which don't really have a stable home where I live, it becomes increasingly hard to find a home for my work because it's, you know, I'm either alien outside my country or writing in genres no one appreciates inside my country. So there is always a lot of you know, a lot of guesswork that 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 needs to be done before I start off on anything. Because I work in multiple media and multiple genres, there's a lot of decision making that needs to happen before I start because I do try and fix the voice for the project in my head. But that voice for the project can only really work once the story has moved ahead a little bit and the characters have made themselves kind of at home in it, you know, because you can design characters as much as you like, but it's only after you've written them and you've seen them in action and you've seen them talk to one another and feel things for one another that you get to know them as well. So I tend to wait to get to know who my characters are in the text and then go back and rewrite everything that came before that. You know, because up to that point, they've been kind of half constructs that, you know, are the ideas that have gone into them, but they haven't become people yet. But there is some point, I think around the one third, one fourth mark of the book, where I suddenly feel like, you know, these people and I understand each other now. And everything that has happened before this point was me seeing them as a stranger. And that needs to be fixed. And it's something that I learned through trial and error, mainly error over the years. Because, I mean, when I look back at, I mean, obviously, if you look back at older work, you, you're both very nostalgic about it and also you hate it. And some of the things, some patterns that I observed was that for the first part of most books, I did not know these people. And I could identify the point at which I got to know these people. So once that's done, the rest of the book generally flows much, much easier. I usually stop around halfway and at, at about the two thirds point to change the rest of the book because... Um, I usually start off with an outline because I want a map for where these people want to go, but then they decide where they want to go in the middle of the book. Sometimes it's the same place, sometimes it's not. Either way, it's something that they earn through what they've done in the book so far. And yeah, so it's, it's. Uh, I think because I've also worked with film and I've worked in comics and all of that, I think the advantage that comes out of that is that you tend to approach things a little more non-linearly. You know, so... I think video editing, for instance, is the closest thing to writing that there is in a non-text medium, you know, because a lot of it is the same decisions. You're trying to find a voice in the image and sound collection, which is not that dissimilar from working with text. So it's, it's, it's nice to be able to kind of see things from these multiple lenses and, um, you know, apply hopefully tools and tricks from different genres and different media that one has learned over the years. I mean, hopefully achieve a good effect, but definitely enjoy the process of doing it. And that's kind of a question we were going to, I was going to touch on here a bit later. You've dabbled in so many varieties of writing styles, be it comic book, where you got some historical romance, you got zombie comedy, you've done young readers, you're a filmmaker, you're obviously you're a novelist, you've done essays, you've been a journalist. Do you have a favorite style of those? And 
beyond just what you talked about with the video editing, is is there any lessons that you pulled from those that you think make you better at what your your craft is? Um, you know, it's hard to say better because uh, it ultimately better is what works for the person who's reading it. You know, but I know that when I'm I know that there are more options that I have in the moment to see where something is going and try to fix um, things that I hate as I'm as I'm building them. I think that is something that definitely comes from working in as many different styles of things as possible. I do enjoy working in many different spaces. Not all of these have been by choice, though, because being a full time writer is not is not something that is easy anywhere in the world. You know, I used to think that it was oh easy in the glorious West, but it's not. The more, the more I get to know other writers, um, and I know hundreds of writers in the US and the UK now, and I can see it's just not easy for anyone. But yeah, but it's it's also it's also great fun to do. Learning how to make something and hopefully getting a little better is wonderful. Whatever the thing is, my favorite form will always be the novel, the full length novel, and this is because. You know, there is much joy in collaboration, but there is also a very specific joy in taking on the responsibility of every department when you're creating the work. So when it's collaborative work, which is everything else pretty much, which is everything from comics, because I can't draw, to filmmaking, which is hundreds of people working on the same thing. When it's a situation where the people involved are making the whole greater than the sum of the parts, then there is that separate joy of that. I think the first the first medium that I worked in extensively, and I say worked in extensively, it was in theater in school, and it wasn't work. But that idea that that, you know, a small cluster of idiots could actually make something decent and have a great deal of fun doing it was something that you sometimes miss when you're when you're in the isolation of just sitting at your keyboard and and typing things so yeah so i so it's nice to get out and find uh, situations where you know there's collaborative work happening and it's happening effectively and everyone's bringing something to it and the whole is something beautiful that is not always available though especially in in you know in very chaotic industries like uh, i cannot begin like if you think shantipur is chaotic bollywood is five times as chaotic by nine in the morning. So um, sometimes it's not great. Sometimes you just want to curl up into a small ball and and start typing again. And that's, um, but it's nice to have that contrast as well. Like, um, because by the time you, you know, you spent a lot of time writing a book and you are now um, Tom Hanks on the island and you've forgotten how to deal with society, then go and work with a hundred people until you never want to see a person again <laughs> and then come back. To your keyboard, I, I would I, think no, novel writing kind of has a the budgets in novels are are infinite in the sense that whereas yeah, the explosion yeah. in the movie is you gotta we only got this much money to make that explosion. There's only yeah. this much panel, and the art costs more when you're you're doing more, you know, in in comics. So anything and everything is available to you there. The Jinbot of Shannonport is very cinematic, and your writing style I can see influences you know kind of seeing things unfold on the screen, like even the action sequences and then the pause with the dialogue, it has a cinematic feel to it. So I can see some crossover even and just, I don't know how you visualize. Oh, absolutely. Thank you. Yes, I absolutely, I see it in my head completely and I hear it as well. So it's, uh, and I think 
in any medium you enjoy the work most when you're when you're immersed in it you know and then you you fail at at least i just fail at describing it so it's like that meme of the horse which uh <laughs> incredibly detailed rear end and that really child's drawing like face but yeah i mean it's the the production logistics aspect is a deeply differencing aspect of any other medium i think i have now had six options to in hollywood and and the rest in bollywood where people were so sure that they were going to make my books into movies and then at some point they read these books <laughs> and things, and things went very rapidly downhill from there so yeah but then and then working in these other media you 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 see how you know how much your imagination is constrained by just there is no one here who can make this or you know you cannot set this kind of work in indian surroundings or you cannot ever find the kind of budget you need to make this project in live action with indian movie stars these are all constraints that that you know no one enjoys hearing about so then books it is you know the the lovely thing is that i think again we are living in a world where people kind of have to be skilled in different media one way or another you know and learning is constant and things change so fast that i think everyone would feel very insecure if they didn't know how to do three or four different things i had a friend that used to say specialization is for insects and i mean i and i'd be happy to be an insect most days but that's not the world we live in one of the things we we do here's we we promise a little bit of fun going into it so we play a game that you might know as something else but we call it kiss mary ditch okay um, so i'm going to give you some categories to choose from and inside those categories you're going to have three things that we're going to lay out you're going to tell me which one you like which one you love and which one is getting kicked to the side all right and i i, I try to make this difficult so be prepared. Um, I'm prepared. Your, your categories today are It's a Pity, Vaughn is the Loneliest Number, and Raiders of the Lost Spark. Lovely. Do I do I pick from these? Yes, pick pick one pick one of those categories and then I'll I'll give you those three things. Raiders of the Lost Spark. We're gonna talk about robots. Uh so of Data, Bender, Bending Rodriguez, and R2D2. Right. Um, so I would kiss R2D2, um, just because it's just, I mean, look at them. He's, he's a big jerk though, but okay. I know, <laughs> but look at the others. Um, I would, I guess, I would, I guess, marry Data. There would be a lot of talking. Oh, you're breaking my heart right now. No, but with, see, the thing with Bender is I would love Bender. I, I love Bender more than either of these two people. But it's not going to work. Oh, you know? look at look and, at that relationship! Like, you know, but I but I feel like my best chance of a long term relationship with Bender, which I want, is to reject him immediately. Okay, okay, I can see yeah. this. I, yeah, I mean, yeah. of of so, them, he's the one that's going to give. I mean, sure, he's going to bring you the the roughest times, but those highs, you got to love him at his worst to get those those good moments. Absolutely. So, I mean, was your third your third version was was it kill? Was it removed from your? What what was the? It was, it's, we're going to call it ditching. We're not going to kill anybody ditching. today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> cool. So no, so I would ditch Bender because that that's the only way Bender would want to stick around in my life. I, I can yeah. see. So it. I'm I'm basically keeping all three. 
Cheating. <laughs> you're, you're pulling a Kobayashi Maru here trying to rearrange the game. Yeah, yeah. I think, yeah, so with R2, it's just a little smack on the top of the head and we're good. Go, <laughs> go around. Yeah. <laughs> to, to give you an idea of what your other options would have been here, Vaughn is the loneliest number. We would have talked about Brian K. Vaughn because I know you are a big Saga fan. And uh, it, it's a pity we would have ranked Mr. T appearances. <gasps> I'm sorry to miss out. I love all of those things. Yeah. I, I might do a deep dive trying to, to make these as tough as possible sometimes. Well, these were excellent categories. Thank you. <laughs> and I know you mentioned sometimes formats can be challenging with transferring even like novels into other formats. Um, is there going to be an audiobook of uh, the Jinba of Shani Port? At the moment, I didn't see one. So I was curious. I haven't. I haven't seen one either, and I desperately want one. I want so one I'm, too. Tell everyone they need the the audiobook. I can see maybe would it be challenging to have like do you do as one person or do you like have two people and then switch? I can see that being a different aspect of the industry, but there needs to be one. Let's yeah, I've been I've been wondering for a long time how to politely poke my publishers and say so that audiobook. Because I do a lot of my reading through audiobook as well. It's on the road. The commute. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I'd, love to, I'd love to see it specifically with graphic audio because of that full cast rendering. Mm -hmm. No one agrees with you more than I do. <laughs> no one. <laughs> one of the things that has come up a bunch through, we, throughout the year here is been how so many... I mean, we we've, we mentioned it right here up at the at the top. You're, you're an international bestseller. You're award winning, but it seems to be when it when we talk to authors, there's an, an imposter syndrome kind of going on here. I mean, obviously, to to be an international bestseller, I mean, that's an, a huge accomplishment. But do, do you still kind of feel yourself beating yourself up at times? As as you said, you you feel like an outsider when you're publishing in the international. You feel like you don't have a home in 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 in, in India. Yes, but also I don't really have imposter syndrome so so much as a resignation that there's probably not going to be one space where where I can be like, this is the book, I will now write 17 books exactly like this. This doesn't really have to do so much with the work, it's just with the shifting nature of markets and, you know, various political circumstances, um, the changing nature of, of everything, of all these industries, both in my home country and outside. So, yeah, so first of all, that's very kind of you to say. I, I certainly felt a lot of imposter syndrome in my early years of just writing books because, you know, there's been nothing in these last 20 years. And, you know, I've been very lucky. I've had moments of unambiguous success and all of that. But there's really nothing that compares to that feeling of being about one third of the way through your first novel with no idea about whether you can do it. You know, that sense of wonder, if I'm actually writing a book. It, it feels like I'm writing a book and that's crazy. You know, obviously I can't write a book, but here there's more and it keeps going. So that that the feeling you get at that exact point, and it it needn't be a novel, of course. It could be whatever the the piece of art that you're trying to create for ambiguously professional circumstances at any point of time, as opposed to just making stuff at home, something that you want to sell. So that sense of that sense of sure, you know, am I actually doing this? And 
I think it's working that you have then. I don't think there's anything that 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 ever really comes close to that in in the sense of that that sure intensity of that of the imposter syndrome that you feel in that moment. I think at this point of time, I no longer feel imposter syndrome professionally. What stays important though is the need to remember that I'm doing all of this because I like doing it. And so, you know, you really have to not just look at what you're not getting or what, you know, what you're not earning or what is not happening with your work, but just that you're getting to do something that you chose to do and something that you actually enjoy doing, which which is a ridiculous privilege in most parts of the world. And if you could spend the day with one of your characters, who would it be? What would you do and why? From the Jinba? Mm -hmm. Well, okay. So I think I would just have a day of fun in the palace. Oh, yes. That would um, be really fun. Having, you know, having met the rest of the city, I would go to the palace and I would find there was a nice uh, valet character who just took care of Lena when she was there. I would spend the day with him. Like, I'm sure I'd have a nice time talking <laughs> to the more interesting characters in the book. But if I have one day, in Chandigarh, uh -huh. and I I grew up in Kolkata, so I know what the outside would be like. However, visually interested, interesting it might be, or how many however many fascinating sounds and smells and foods there might be. I'm good. I'm going to spend the day at the spa. I'm going to walk around the gardens. I'm going to look at art. I'm going to eat the food. I'm going to eat the very fancy food. That's what I'll do. And when you said palace, spa was the first thing that came to mind. So yeah. that sounds perfect. Yeah. <laughs> This is what you need when it's hot outside, but the city's sinking. When it's uh -huh. a general apocalypse, what you need is air conditioning and mm -hmm. fancy food and calm. As you can see, I spend a lot of time in libraries as well. <laughs> <laughs> How much do you think people can learn about you as a person from your reading and writing? Um, A lot, really. Because, um, I mean, I say I try to do different voices, but it's basically just me talking whatever uh, the book is, you know, and then hopefully a bit of character specificity afterwards so that everyone doesn't just sound like me. But yeah, I think increasingly also as I'm, uh, as I'm growing older, I'm trying to make sure that when there's that inevitable, you know, rage at the state of the world or more opinions about how things shouldn't be and how that somehow wholly ana analogous with how they are, I make sure that that goes into the book. It's not something that I leave out. And, you know, and I find that whether readers agree with that strongly or disagree with that strongly, I'm fine with either outcome, but it feels more honest. So, yeah, so I am putting increasingly more of me is going into each of the books as I make them. What are you currently reading slash watching? I'm currently, uh, I'm doing a, Reread of uh, Vajra Chandrasekhar's Saint of Bright Doors, which is a Sri Lankan literary fantasy book that that's been very successful, I think, in the US. And I'm reading an early, well, what's going to be an ARC of, I don't know what the eventual title will be, but it's a book by Lavanya Lakshmi Narayan, who uh, published The 10% Thief in 2023. And this is her second novel. And it's a book about I mean, it's food as a metaphor for culture, but it's set in space. It's set in space and it's set in an intergalactic cooking tournament that this immigrant character goes through. And it's just an amazing book. She's an amazing writer. So I this is this is out next year sometime. I'm not sure when, 
but Lavanya Lakshmi Narayan is the author, and I, and I hope you read it. It's it's fabulous. It sounds delightful. One of the things that we've learned is that writers love to to fall down rabbit holes. So what I like to ask is it kind of gives us a it's a it's a tease for what might be coming in the future as well. But what is the strangest thing in your search history? Oh no. Um, all right. So actually, yeah, actually the strangest thing in my search history is so there's a kind of fascist, but maybe not influencer in India who's on the Indian version of um, Big Brother. Is it called Big Brother in the US as well? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 So the Indian one is called Big Boss. And this guy is trending on Twitter all the time. And his name is Elvish Yadav. So I wanted to know whether Elvish was from elves, as in Tolkien elves, or whether it was a misspelling of Elvis. Ah, what was the answer? I couldn't tell, and this was a rabbit <laughs> hole. Because obviously... <laughs> none none of the people who follow him have heard of either of these things so uh-huh. they don't know who elvis is and they don't know what elvis is uh-huh. um and i needed to find out so uh-huh. that yeah so i, I spent a lot of i eventually figured that it was a misspelling of elvis mm. because okay. i could not because after a long deep dive into a rabbit hole i could not find a single space where this person had been influenced by the lord of the rings so maybe uh, Elvis. Yeah, probably Elvis. Probably. I, I'm a, a big fantasy person. And at one point in my life, I was going to uh, gaming conventions and stuff. And so cosplay was a big part. And that was one of the ones that I was always trying to find myself a nice sequined jumpsuit that I could do. And I was going to be Elvish Presley and, with the big <laughs> old elf ears and everything. <laughs> so that, that was my dream at one point. So I, I, I support both of these. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And we are a library podcast. So how have libraries impacted your life? Immensely. I was lucky enough to have a library at home when I was growing up. Um, so my my whole family was pretty elderly and very scared of letting me go outside to face the apocalypse. So there was an easy compromise to be found by just many, many books in the house. And also because like me, my family is very disorganized. This library was just randomly stacked. Um, there was no children's books shelf. There was no language division and there was no genre division at all. So I did not understand that books were of different types. I just thought they were books. So for many, many years, I was very confused by the idea of genre of of any of this, all that children's. So I read a lot of books that I completely did not understand as a child. Completely inappropriate in language that I that I didn't know the words and all of that. And then when I graduated to more kind of logically structured libraries in school and all of that, then it was then then a lot of things made sense because like, okay, so this is how they do these things. Um and yeah, so everywhere I've gone, it's just um if there's a library nearby, I will be there. Because uh, you know, we also live in a world where discovery of books is difficult. You know, because you're having these books pushed at you. The algorithm is kind of meddling about with the inside of your head. There is no real substitute for either asking someone who knows books or wandering around shelves and picking something up for yourself. However, industries function, there is a magic in a library that I hope, you know, as many people as possible get to experience because it is it is really 
if you spend time in libraries, then no matter however many TikToks come to the world or whatever the next thing is, there will always be a space for books in your heart. And I think that's important. So as we come to sort of the end of our, our, our time here, I'm going to ask you the question that I know you hate the worst. Um, is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners? Um, yeah, I'm uh, right now. I don't know when my next book is coming out. It's probably going to be 2025, late 2025, early 2026. And that's if things go smoothly. And I also feel like uh, social media has kind of broken down. It was for the longest time my only, um, you know, link to the world outside the country. And now that's gone as well. So if there's anything I want to share with your listeners, it's just a random hello. And remember me, <laughs> I'll be back in some years. Um, the world is changing every day. It was nice to have been a part of your R today. And um I hope we run into each other again at some point of time through a book or something. Well, this has been a lot of fun. It's been yes. really fun to get to know your process and and meet you. Likewise, I just had the best time. Thank you both so very much. Thank you. Thank you so much, Samet, for joining us on Unstacked. The Jinpa of Shanipur is available in the library collection for checkout. It can also be purchased at your favorite bookstore and online vendors. Check out his website, sametbasu.com. That is S-A-M-I-T-B-A-S-U dot com. Stay safe and read, my friend. It's good for you. Bye. Bye.